Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Anxiety Book Club. I know, I can't believe it, 10 episodes, it's almost a year's worth of episodes when you do one a month, imagine that. This month, we are taking a look at this book called The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris, Dr. Russ Harris. And my goal with this book is to do it in two parts. It's a long book, and you're encouraged to take it slowly. So we will discuss the first part this month and the second part next month. And notably, for you loyal listeners that often hear two voices on these episodes, this episode will just feature one voice. Um, Just me. Yep. Your loyal host, Josh Molina, because I couldn't get the attention of the author, Ross Harris. And so it'll just be me going it alone. But we're never truly alone in this uh, life we have here on Earth, right? For a couple of reasons. One, we've got all the voices in our brain, which are nice sometimes. And then all of you, right? If you hear this, that means that somehow in some place you're with me. So this book is another another treatment of acceptance and commitment therapy which this podcast is no stranger to we actually even had the originator of acceptance and commitment therapy stephen hayes i think it was in episode three uh, get out of your mind and into your life interestingly he's actually the author of the foreword of this book so I'm I'm really intrigued by ACT, and I guess that's why I'm reading another book on it. Um, it was also recommended to me by a therapist that I respect a lot. So, yeah, I've been digging my way through the book, The Happiness Trap. Okay, so apparently there's something that we could fall into as human beings that will rob us of our pursuit. There's a quote in the foreword that I liked that I highlighted. It says, like a lion placed in a paper cage... Human beings are generally most trapped by the illusions of their own mind. Stephen Hayes. So, why read this book? Well, acceptance and commitment therapy, I think, is a powerful framework. And as we can learn in the foreword, there's there's good reason to be focusing on mental health, which should be no surprise given the current pandemic. The statistics are staggering. I'm reading from the foreword. In any given year, almost 30% of the adult population will suffer from a recognized psychological disorder. One in four adults will suffer from drug or alcohol addiction. One in ten will attempt suicide. Yeah, so that's um, that's heavy stuff, right? Here we are, walking around this planet, trying to, when we're not quarantined inside our homes. And we have an amazing capacity in our brains to solve really complex really difficult problems. We went to the moon. Al Gore created the internet. I'm talking, right? We use language. These are improbable, amazing achievements. And yet, despite our problem-solving ability, we get, we get caught up and we have trouble living day-to-day in a way that feels pleasant. So according to Russ Harris, the primitive mind was basically a don't get killed device. Don't get killed device. And you know this from listening to the podcast and maybe other readings that you've done. 
our brain is this thing inside of our heads and it's got all these different parts responsible for all these different things, making our heart beat, making our lungs breathe, allowing us to talk, experience emotions. And principally, uh, in large part, avoid danger. And I'm not, I'm not always the biggest fan of this story about how we have these fight or flight instincts, mostly because we grew up on the savannas of, of Africa, I guess, and a noise in a bush, which nowadays means almost nothing, or it's, it's mostly a neutral experience to, to experience hearing a, a noise in a bush. That same noise in a bush, I don't know, 2,000 years ago, paying attention to it could have been the difference between surviving and, and mating and having children and, and dying by saber-toothed tiger attack. Now, I don't doubt the story. I don't have any reason to. I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but it just seems like a little stale. Like, it's not much more to say. Okay, so we grew up under circumstances in which the brain that we have was super, super adaptive, super well fit. And remember, we weren't even living that long. And it kept us alive long enough to spread our, spread our seeds, so to speak. But now here we are in modern society. Most things are safe outside of driving and, I guess, coronavirus. And yet we have this hypervigilance. So, so there lies the problem. Russ Harris makes the distinction between two different kinds of happiness. One that is synonymous with pleasure. So eating, drinking, having sex, petting, um, watching a movie maybe. And then the other one, which is more about having a meaningful life. Living according to your values, moving in directions according to what we deem worthy. I think that's an okay distinction, right? We don't have words for these two different kinds of happiness. And I think you can probably bet that in this book and in this episode, we're going to be focusing on the second, second of those two definitions. In order to get there, we need to pay attention need to pay attention to what's going on and we need to find out what our values are so that we can move in that direction and so that we can ultimately build a meaningful life. It seems like we can't make the first one our priority at all times. The fleeting pleasures of, you know, the body or, you know, earthly pleasures, they're just not always around. And if you engage in them too much, like eating too much chocolate cake or drinking too much alcohol, there's negative effects. So, you know, it's just not something we can lean on to keep us feeling good at all times. You should be able to control what you think and feel. This is, this is something he's pointing out as something that people are taught, but which just isn't true. At least to some degree, right? Most of the thoughts that I have, I do not make. I just say that for myself. I think I make some. Like if you if you meditate and you repeat a mantra over again, over and over again, I like dogs, I like dogs, I like dogs. You might be able to say, okay, I made that thought. But the thought you get, you know, that I'm getting right now, which is that I'm thirsty, 
I certainly didn't make it. Here's a good one that I really like. Having negative thoughts and feelings means I'm a normal human being. That means if you have negative thoughts and feelings, do you know what that means? It means you're alive. (laughs) They could do that uh, instead of checking for people's pulses. So there's this distinction specifically about anxiety, which is relevant to our podcast, right? Mine and yours. It is not okay to feel anxious and I try hard to avoid it versus I don't like anxiety, but it's okay to feel it. I think you guys can guess what is the healthier response. You don't have to like anxiety or any of these negative emotional states. But if you can teach yourself that it's okay that they're there, not dangerous, then you're going to have a more easeful life. So none of what I'm saying right now, I think, is particularly specific to acceptance and commitment therapy. A lot of it is just kind of basic mindfulness, which we had a great episode on um, last, last month, episode nine. So there's different ways in which we avoid negative feelings. Hiding slash escaping, distraction, self-bullying, criticism. So I think these are familiar, like quitting something might be a hiding or escaping strategy, distraction, put on the TV, eat all the ice cream, self-bullying, criticism. Not sure if that's a way to escape, but it's definitely unhelpful way to deal with something that's already difficult. What this book wants to stress, and I think all good books on these topics should stress, is that no one's asking you to be Superman or Superwoman or, you know, super non-gender identifying person. It's fine to eat ice cream. It's fine to eat chocolate. It's fine to watch TV. It's fine to turn the radio on when you're sitting in traffic and you've had a bad day. I think it would be masochistic to ask yourself, it's my personal opinion, to lean into every single unpleasant experience. You just have to, and here's, you know, the unsatisfying answer, you just have to find the right balance. If, if eliminating, eliminating unhelpful or unpleasant feelings or experiences is keeping you from living the life that you want to lead, then maybe you're doing too much of it. But if it's not, it's just helping you out a little bit on your commute home from work or making you feel a little bit better after having a tough conversation with someone and it's like, you know, some chocolate. You know, I'm not, and you know, again, and maybe I should start all the episodes this way. I have no license or certification from any organization or institution i'm just reading these books and when i'm lucky talking to the authors so you can take everything that i say with as many grains of salt as seem appropriate so this was a question i wanted to ask russ harris if he came on because he mentioned that in the past and russ harris i guess i didn't give him a proper introduction but it seems like he is a physician And a therapist. Okay, here's his bio. He's a physician, therapist, speaker, specializing in stress management. He travels around uh, teaching ACT. He was born in England, lives in Australia. (laughs) 
he uh, mentioned that he used to eat lots and lots of bags of chocolate chips when I think he was a med student. And I think that made him unhealthy or, or, or fatter than he wanted to be. And so that might be an example. That's, yeah, that's an example. So if when you're stressed in medical school, you're eating bags and bags of chocolate chips, which honestly sounds pretty fun, not the medical school part. And that's making you feel feel crappy. Oh, I got a video here. It's it's making you um, fatter than you want to be, and making you unhealthy. And your values are being healthy or something. Then you're distracting too much, right? So there, it's got to be a case by case thing. There's not going to be a a prescription that you can be handed for how often you're allowed to distract. Allowed, right? That's not even an unhealth and a helpful word. He gives an example about something that's a control strategy, like those distractions we mentioned, or a value-guided action. Okay, so this is interesting. So the thoughts we have in our head, a lot of them you might call stories. Stories about everything. I have the story that I need to eat three times a day, that I need to sleep eight hours. Are they true? I don't know. I probably get by with seven. I've been tracking my sleep, actually. I can open the app and let you know how much I've been getting. Probably not eight, and here I am talking to you guys. Uh, Eat three times a day. Sounds good to me. Four would be even better. But is it true? I don't know. That's actually not relevant. We're not necessarily interested in whether the stories are true. When they're true, they're called facts. But what we're interested in is whether or not they're helpful. Does paying attention to them help us create the life that we want? A lot of times you might be going through life and a story might be playing in your head. Like, let's say uh, you have a fight with your spouse and you're arguing about something and it turns out you're right. Let's say you're right. That's true. But maybe sticking to it and maybe not deferring to him or her to help settle the argument. Maybe that story about how you're right just isn't helpful, right? If, if by helpful, it, I mean, getting you to maintain a relationship, which might be one of your values. It's important. And if it's a wake up call for me, don't necessarily get hung up on whether the stories in your head are true or false. Just being true doesn't automatically mean we should pay attention to them. We have this sort of soggier criteria of whether or not to pay attention to them called helpfulness. These thoughts or stories can often capture us like a Venus flytrap on a fly. I've been thinking about these a lot because I've got fruit flies in my apartment and I've been looking at carnivorous plants as an option for how to get rid of them. These thoughts, they capture us like the tiger in the bush. If we don't see them coming If we have no distance between us and the thoughts, then they just fuse in our brains and we become sort of like living, action-oriented instantiations of like these thought processes. And if those thoughts are not helpful, then we want to put a little distance between us and them. And that's really a lot of what mindfulness is about. But one technique that Russ Harris recommends called diffusing your thoughts is... When you notice them, let's say you notice the thought, I am bad or I am weak-willed. Just some examples of things that come out of my brain. Instead of 
when you hear the thought that's repeating, I am bad and weak-willed, you might say, I am having the thought that I am bad and weak-willed, right? And so instead of saying, I'm bad, you say, I'm having the thought that I am bad. And you, and you ask yourself, does that feel any different? I am bad. I am having the thought that, well, once you say, I'm having the thought that I am bad, it no longer seems like true necessarily. Now we, it's clear. It's just a thought. Then we can take it a step further and we say, I notice that I'm having the thought that I am bad and weak-willed. So now we've abstracted up one more layer. We notice that I, right, just walking along, minding my own business, a thought comes. I notice that I'm having the thought that I'm bad and weak-willed. So this is a, a way to create distance between you and your thoughts. And here I, I put in a comment, is this a shortcut to mindfulness? Do you not have to sit on your cushion for five days in silence? You know, can you just do this? I don't know. I don't, I think you still need the regular mindfulness practice in order to even notice the thoughts in the first place. But um, so far he hasn't recommended going on retreat. So I'll let you know, maybe in the second part of this, we'll get to that. Now, here's the other big sort of bombshell that is probably familiar to you. And I'm, I don't, I'm not going to provide any citations here, but on page 43 of the hard copy, soft bound, hard copy, he says that research shows that about 80%, 80% of our thoughts have negative content. It's kind of, it's kind of a tough statistic there. You should lower the flags just for that. 80%. It's no wonder life is difficult. It's no longer we're often captured by these negative moods and emotional states. 80%. I'll give you a great example. This morning I went for a bike ride. I love, 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 love riding my bike. It's just like a thing that, I don't know, I have a special relationship with. And I was riding along on this greenway west from my home in Fort Lauderdale. And... The people who made the greenway, they didn't, like, finish it. So whenever it goes to a street, there's no, like, Passover or crosswalk. You have to, like, dismount your bike, dodge traffic, hop over a median, and then get back on your bike. And I have so much resentment towards the state of Florida and Broward County and the government for not building a society that is for people on bikes and pedestrians, but is, is for people in cars. And that was really distracting me from the, the fact that I was having what you might consider to be a pleasant experience was riding my bicycle on a greenway that was by no means perfect, but, but provided me for, I think my ride to this morning was like three hours, three hours of riding on a mostly, in a mostly card-free area. And so there again, it's just an example of when the negative comes out of something positive, of something not being good enough. Ross Harris also suggests that you name your story. So that story might be called The Greenway is Not Good Enough. Bike, biking in Florida is not good enough. Like if you name the stories, especially the ones that come up for you a lot, you can get some distance because the next time I have a story about how this place is not bikeable enough, I'll be like, oh, there's the bike story. 
It doesn't mean it's false. It doesn't mean that I should just do nothing about it. It just reminds me that it's a story. It's a thought. And sometimes it's helpful to act on it. And sometimes it's not. So maybe it gives you that option to decide whether or not to get carried away by labeling the stories. Because we're not trying to say that all the thoughts are false. We're just trying to give you a little bit of distance so that you have the option of whether or not they're worth, you know, keeping them close or or leaving them sort of at bay. On page 49, he says something that I would like just people to get tattooed on their foreheads. We don't choose most of the thoughts in our head, but they're there. They're just... So when these stories come up, like, I'm unworthy, I'm bad, I'm weak-willed, I'm too fat, what you can do is you can thank your mind. That's another way of creating a little bit of distance. Oh, I'm bad. Thank you, mind. Oh, this uh, greenway is not good enough. Thanks. Thanks for the thought, brain. Interesting. I'm going to get back to my bike ride now. You know, normally I'm not that charitable to the brain. I'll say like, you know, F you brain. Because like I sometimes I just get tired of it. But, you know, perhaps at some point in on my path, I'll be able to say like, cool story brain. You're an amazing storyteller. So I mentioned this word before fusion, which I think comes out of the act literature. And Russ Harris makes a distinction between when it's good to fuse and when it's not. One example of when it's not good is when you're believing an unhelpful thought, like I am bad. What are you going to do with that? Is that going to help you move you move you towards your value-driven life, towards a life of meaning? I am bad. Oh, yeah, one of my values is believing I'm bad. No. Um, but when fusion is good, getting lost in a great movie. Okay? When you're in that zone watching the movie you probably have like a silly smile on your face and you're you're just lost in the story if you watch movies 13 hours a day then it perhaps could become unhelpful but in this case it's good right because why not enjoy your life this book isn't telling you not to this here's this is cool and i'm paraphrasing this on page 85 our mind trying to make sure we don't get killed sees potential danger everywhere, a long line at the bank, a moody spouse, a new job, an unflattering reflection in the mirror, you name it. Now, this might just be for people with anxiety disorders. I don't know. I have one. I can't really speak to people that don't. But it's the confusion that takes place when the suboptimal feels dangerous. A long line at the bank. Oh, this line is so long. I'm going to have to sit here with my thoughts for like 30 minutes and I'm going to get all frustrated and sweaty and I'm hungry and maybe I'll be late for work and my boss will yell at me. All those like what ifs, that whole chain of reasoning, that was probably appropriate when it was like, there's a long line at the uh, at the river this morning. There might be a tiger that might come to eat me while I'm waiting for this line. I think I'll come back later when there's less people here. But here in modern life, it's not helpful because there's no danger there. A moody spouse, a new job. All these things are scary. But in fact, there's no danger there. Remember, having negative emotions 
doesn't mean there's something wrong with your life. I think it means there's something right with your life, namely that you have a life. He talks about urge surfing, right? The urge to yell at your partner or have a big bowl of cookies. They, like mood states and other feelings, we can surf them. And you know what? They dissipate. Now, I don't have much personal experience with that because when I have a hankering for a bowl of cookies, most times I act on it. But apparently, if you don't, at some point you will stop craving cookies. So I'll leave that to you, dear reader or listener, to find out if it's true or not. So here he has a mnemonic device that can help us. It's ACT. It's the ACT acronym. A, accept your thoughts and feelings. They're just thoughts. They're just feelings that can't hurt you. Connect with your values. We haven't really discussed values and how to get them. Maybe the second part of this book will have that. And T, take effective action. The ultimate aims of the practice, inspired and taught here in this book, The Happiness Trap, is to be aware of your feelings but not preoccupied, to accept them fully, allow them to come and go, to focus on them if and when they are helpful, to do so not when they're true, just if they're helpful, and no matter what you're feeling, keep on doing what you value. I think that's maybe resilience. This is interesting. I like this quote, the thinking self is rather like a time machine. It continually pulls us into the future and the past. Right? This gets stressed a lot when you read these kinds of books. The past doesn't exist anymore. The future never gets here. <laughs> All we have is now. The thinking self is constantly worrying about the future, regretting something from the past. So it's kind of like a time machine. I don't know if that's helpful, but I read in, I think in uh, the Stephen Hayes book, there was a mindfulness exercise where you'd put your finger on your thigh and as you're meditating, if you have a thought that brings you into the future, you move your finger to the right. It's like, oh, future thinking. And when you have a thought that is about the past, something you should have done better, or whatever, anything about the past, you move your finger to the left. And right, it is, it's a time machine. So we're encouraged to live in the present. As trite as it sounds, it's really the only time that exists. So that's, the, that's part one. I think we're going to end it there. Thank you.